You may be seated this morning. Thank you, worship team. I tell you what, uh, if we leave ourselves in an open stance toward the Lord when we come to his house, so often he'll put something that is not only true but timely for others. Matthew 17, if you would join me, Matthew 17. Uh, this will be our second, what I think will end up being three messages in this chapter. says, Lord, it is good that the three of us are here because we, if you want it, we can make a, a little tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling place, one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. He barely gets the words out of his mouth, but that the Father, God the Father, interrupts him. Remember what we said there. When someone interrupts another person, what they're in essence saying is what I'm saying is more important than what you're saying. 
So the father interrupted Peter's foolish talk and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. So I'll go ahead and confess to you guys this morning. The first few verses we're getting ready to read, and it'll be our first point this morning that was from a few weeks ago, are a hard passage, a, a complicated passage. And I'm going to give you a conclusion that I, I feel confident in, but I would not die for my conclusion. All that to say, this would be easy to skip and just move to the title of today's text, which will be the second and third point. But if I were to do that, then I would not be listening to the Lord. The Lord is going to speak here, and so we need to actually pay attention. For some reason, He is laying a lot of emphasis on what we're going to look at, even in verses 9 to 13, and then ultimately headed to verses 14 to 20. So with that in mind, we ready? So this has happened upon the mountain, and eventually... God the Father, the cloud has left. Moses and Elijah are no longer visible. The Lord is no longer shining as he was before. He's back looking in normal appearance. And now we're moving to the day after that. Verse 9. Let's read our text. Here we go. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them. He commanded very sternly, Tell no one the vision. Except this time, there's a qualifier, Until... The Son of Man is raised from the dead. Hear it again. I I try to read this and picture it happening. They're coming down the mountain. The Lord's leading the way. There's four of them. It's almost as though he turns and says, Hey, by the way, don't say anything about what you saw and heard. Are we clear? Until the Son of Man, that's his title for himself, is raised from the dead. That's two very confusing things to them. Two separate confusing things. Verse 10. I believe there may have been a little gap between verse 9 and 10 because of what something Mark says, but I think they're probably looking, making sounds and motions to each other. And verse number 10, some point happens as they're descending down the mountain. The disciples asked him, then why? Then why do do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do the scribes? But I'm... I read a lot into that word, then. Tell no one the vision till the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. See that? Elijah does come. Let me tell you how sometimes that's translated. Elijah will come. Don't tell anyone what you've seen till the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come. Elijah will come. Now watch the tenses of the verb the next just to prove what we just said. Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Jesus is still talking, verse 12. But I tell you, so Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. He does come. He will But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they, remember the they, they are the Jewish political leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus says, he's already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands." Implying what they did to John, they will do to me, the Son of Man. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So we've got 
They ask about Elijah. He starts saying he will come and he will do restore all things, but he's already come and this happened and they're going to do this to me. And then the disciples understood, oh, he's talking about John the Baptist, verse 14. Now they're coming to the bottom of the mountain, back down to reality. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him. And I get it, this is moving kind of quick now. So the other was nice and slow. It's wonderful. Man, we're on the glorious mountain. What a glorious sight. Life's never been better. This confirms everything we thought about the Lord Jesus. I mean, did you see what happened? Verse 14, back to reality down at the bottom part of the mountain. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often... He falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Let me inflect here in verse 16. Mark, Matthew is doing a very short version of this text, like just a few verses. Mark does more than twice as much on this part. Mark tells us that this man brought his son to find Jesus. Jesus obviously is not there, so there's nine disciples, and hey, they have ability. They have a track record. And so he brings them to the nine. Verse 16 again. I brought him to your disciples, his son, and they could not heal him. That implies to me there were multiple, several attempts that failed. Jesus' reaction in verse 17 is very strong. Very strong. I cannot say for sure. Perhaps it was said something along this line. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless. And twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. The bring him here to me is in plural. Apparently, he tells his disciples, probably the nine, you go bring him here to me so that I will do what you could not do. They bring the young man to him, verse number 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Watch verse 18 again. You would think that's the climax. I'm going to kind of warn. In our mind, verse 18 is the climax. But obviously the way, the tone that Matthew has written, this is not the main point, but it doesn't need to be a lesser point. Verse 18. Jesus rebuked. They bring the boy. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. When was he healed? When it came out of him. A little time goes by. The crowd's gone. Jesus is along with his disciples. One of the other ones tell us they're in a house. The other gospels. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, Move from here to there. And it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Would you notice three things this morning? Number one, let's go back and get verses 9 to 13. Clarification about Elijah and John. Clarification about Elijah and John. As you're writing that, I want to ask you a question, especially in mind of today, the day and age that we live. Imagine that today you saw the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life, the most beautiful thing. Picture it. I don't know what the most beautiful thing you've seen up to this point, but imagine that today, this afternoon, you were to see the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, the most glorious thing you've ever seen in your life. What would you do? 
Really picture it. What would you do? Well, I can tell you what you would do. You'd say, well, I would look at it, and I would enjoy it. And if it's there long enough, I'd get my phone out, and I'd take a picture of it, right? And you'd save it. Is that the end of it? It's the most glorious thing you've ever seen in your life. What else would you do? You'd say, well, I'd show it to anybody that I was around. Oh, come on. You'd do more than that. What would you do? You'd post it. Why? Because I want other people to experience at least somewhat of what I experienced. This is so great. And let's just be honest. There's a little bit of prestige that goes if you're the one that's able to show the greatest thing that anyone's ever thought. This is a nice picture, but if you were there in person, it's really, really was great in the moment. But I do want you to see at least a reflection of what I saw. Back to verse number 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them two very confusing things. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples just saw the most amazing thing that anyone on earth has ever seen. They've just heard the literal voice of God the Father speaking to them. And the Lord says, do not tell anyone what you have seen. Do not describe this to anyone. Just keep it to yourself. This is between the four of us. And you say, what's their reaction? I'll go ahead and tell you. They obeyed. Mark chapter 9 verse number 10 says, so they kept the matter to themselves. Why does Jesus, so this is confusing, why are we not allowed to say what we just saw? Write this note quickly. I think this is the same idea as chapter 16, verse number 20, when the Lord said after Peter's confession, the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Same thing here. This confirms that he's the Christ, so why are they not to tell it? This was to squelch premature attempts to make Jesus king. We've really dug into that before, so we're not going into it deeply now. But the Lord is saying, don't tell people I'm the Christ. Don't tell people what you saw on the mountain. I, I, he, he is all about squelching premature attempts to make him king. Why? Because the Lord will let nothing hinder him from his cross. Think about that. I don't have time to preach it, but go home and think about this. How the Lord, though the cross his death on the cross was the most bitter cup, the most, the most horrib horrifying, painful, excruciating, lonely death that's ever been experienced. He was on a beeline. He would let nothing stop him from dying on that cross because he loves you. He loves me. The Lord would not let anything stop him. And so the Bible, again, Mark chapter 9, verse number 10, so they kept the matter to themselves. But watch. Mark 9.10 has a second part. Listen to it. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. That's why I'm picturing them smirking and looking and shoulder shrugging behind the Lord as if he doesn't know what they're doing. Like, what's that mean? I don't know. What's this whole mean? Whole thing mean? I think that the next things out of their mouth, verse 10, Jesus, they, so they asked the Lord, verse, verse 10, the disciples asked him, then why? I think the then why is their way of saying, it's finally starting to sink in a little bit. What Jesus had said seven days earlier, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, I will be killed, and I'll rise again the third day. I think it's finally starting to sink into them. They don't know why Jesus is going to die, but they're starting to accept that Jesus is really serious about dying. And so I'm going to propose to you this morning what the Lord is doing. He is pulling apart their model of theology. They have a model of theology. I was just speaking to someone this morning about models of theology. They had theirs. I have mine. If you would picture Jenga sticks, right? You've got these Jenga blocks. 
Where did they get their model of theology? They took these things from the Old Testament, these pieces of information, and they formed them in a certain way. Again, if we just want to picture a structure, a building. They have a model of theology. They had one, I have mine, you have your own. The Lord is coming along and in essence saying you have a lot of gaps in your theology. You have a lot of misappropriation. You have some of the right pieces, but you have them in the wrong order. And he's changing things. And he's throwing some things out. And he's rearranging them. And he's adding some more things that they've totally missed. And I believe the first two words that they say in verse number 10 is their way of saying, we're not giving up our model without not a fight, but at least an explanation. And frankly, that's the way I am when I have mine. I believe what I believe, and so if there's another viewpoint, and I've been wrong on it, by the way, I've had that happen many times where the Scripture interrupts my model, and I always have to go with the Scripture. But they have their view, and they have their model of theology, and so it's being rearranged. And so they're asking the Lord, then why? Can I propose to you that this is what's happening? Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Risen from the dead? What's that mean? They're mulling over, what could that possibly... So some, at some point, Lord, then why do the scribes say this about Elijah? I believe if we go back to the model viewpoint, they have a new foundation that is rock solid. I want you all to help me here. What do they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that is the baseline of their model of theology? And it has been confirmed not only verbally but visually. They know that Jesus is the Christ. You with me? So we know that. You are the Christ. Yes. Are the scribes correct? Because they've been teaching us that Elijah has to come back before the Christ, you, sets up his kingdom. Are they correct? Verse number 11, in essence, Jesus, look at verse 11. He answered and said, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Check. You are the Christ. Check. Elijah will come. Check. Where did they get this idea? Hold your spot, Matthew 17. Go back to the previous book of the Bible. So it's the last one in the Old Testament. Flip back there. I want you to see the last two verses that you have in your Old Testament. Flip back there quickly. Where did they get this idea? Where did the scribes? Did the scribes make this up? And the Lord says, no, they did not make this up. They are correct in what they say about Elijah. This has come up multiple times now in the book of Matthew. And I'll go ahead and tell you guys, I don't, I have not to this point put as much emphasis on this as apparently I need to because the Lord keeps putting it in my preaching whereas I would just skip over it okay we got it we've talked about it in times past he keeps bringing it up again and again and so apparently this is important verse 4 of chapter 4 verse 5 the last prophecy in the Old Testament is the following behold you get it the last two verses behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes the great and awesome day of the Lord is described in verse 1. Two things are happening. So the arrogant and the evildoers are going to be consumed like stubble. They're going to be burned up. And then it goes on to describe how the righteous are going to be like so joyful they're going to go out like calves being let out of a gate. Verse 5 again. Here's a prophecy that looks forward. And this is what the Jews to this day still expect. When they observe the Passover, we're told that good devout Jews leave a chair at their Passover celebration for Elijah to return. There's some symbolism in that. Verse 5 again. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter de destruction. He's going to come, and his ministry is going to be effective, so much so that I'm not going to utterly destroy all the people. 
in Israel. He's going to have an effective ministry. So did you catch it? So here we are again. They're lawyering. They're lawyering. So Lord, you're the Christ. We know that. That's the baseline of of our model. True. The Bible says, the scribes, and you just said they're correct, that Elijah will come back before you set up your kingdom. Check. That is true. All right. Elijah was just, I think what they're implying is, he was just on the mountain yesterday. You see where we're going. You're the Christ. You're going to set up a kingdom. He must come before you set up your kingdom. He was just on the mountain yesterday. Doesn't that kind of count? Isn't that why we're headed to Jerusalem? You're going to set up your kingdom. And if that's so, that's our model. If that's what you're doing, then why in the world do you keep talking about dying on a cross? This makes no sense. What are we missing? Are we missing something? Oh, you're missing a lot. You're way off. What does this tell us? They are totally clueless. They do not understand the necessity that Jesus must go to Jerusalem, not to reveal himself as the Messiah King, but to reveal himself as the Messiah Savior. He must die for our sins and be raised again victorious over sin, proving that the Father received his death on the cross as a punishment for Jeff Bartlett's sin and yours. But they're missing this altogether. And so before we leave our first point, go back to... Well, we'll come back to Matthew 17 in a moment. I want to very quickly hit three passages. Go to Luke chapter 1. Flip over there because this is going to give us a quick clarification about this whole Elijah situation. Because they know Elijah is going to come. And the Lord confirms it. Yes, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Yet he's already come. How's that possible? All right. Look at Luke chapter 17. I had you turn, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 1. I had you turn there because I'm going to read verse 17, but just to let your eyes glance. There will not be on the screen. I noticed yesterday when I read, or a few days ago, when I read the context here, there are actually nine prophecies that have been fulfilled in this passage culminating in the main one that I want you to see in verse 17. If you have it open in front of you, look back to 13, and here's what you'll see. Gabriel comes. He's telling this man named Zachariah, and he has a wife named Elizabeth, that number one, here's prophecy number one, your wife Elizabeth's going to have a son. Number two, you're going to call his name John. Check, check. Those happen. Number three, you're going to have great joy because of this son. Three, check. That did happen. Number four, many other people are going to rejoice at his birth. Check. That happened. Number five, he's going to be great before the Lord. That did happen. Check. And number six, he must not drink strong He must not drink wine or strong drink. Check. That happened. Number six. Now, number seven. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That happened. All this happened. We know this is talking about John the Baptist. Verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. You're like, wait a minute. That sounds a little bit like the Malachi. Hang on. Gabriel predicts, the angel Gabriel says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, that, that happened. Verse 17. That was John's ministry. Verse 17. And he will go before him. Who? The Lord their God. He, John, he, will go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to, uh, to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the, pe- for the Lord a people prepared. Look at verse 17 again. And he, John, that we call John the Baptist, will go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Check, that happened. So, Jeff, what happened? This man, John, came on the scene, and his ministry, once it started, just blew up so quick. 
It was a massive, powerful work, and God was using it. So much so that it, even where he came from in the wilderness and the way he dressed this rough garb reminded people of Elijah. Man, this guy's like Elijah. He's coming out of the wilderness. He dresses that way. No one has preached so bold as he does. He even stands up to the politicians and the kings just like Elijah. Everything about his ministry reminded people of Elijah. And so they're thinking, this must be the prophecy of Malachi that's being fulfilled. Flip over to John chapter 1. I'm glad you asked. Look at John chapter 1. Is he Elijah? Notice John chapter 1. His ministry blew up so strong, so powerful, that a delegation from, from Jerusalem of priests and Levites are sent to go check it out. Go ask him. Once they come and ask, we're in John chapter 1. One of the first things he tells them, first off, I am not the Christ. Don't think that I'm the Christ. So verse 21, watch it. And they asked him, what then? So if you're not the Christ, are you, let's just ask him point blank, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Then are you the prophet? And he answered, no. What they mean there, are you the great prophet that Moses predicted would come in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 18. Are you that great prophet? No. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Okay, so he's not Elijah. He says he's not. Well, I guess he's confused. No, he's not. He's not confused. You know how you never see Clark Kent and Superman in the same room? Y'all figured that out? We're not going to get to heaven and discover, you know what I've noticed? You never see Elijah and John together. Hmm. Why are they never side by side? I'll see Elijah and I'll see John. I never see Elijah and John. They're probably the same person. They are not the same person. John just flat out said, I am not Elijah. Now, something to really confuse you even further. One, this will be the last passage we'll look at this morning in our text because we're going to dig in in a moment to the demon-possessed boy. Go to Matthew 11. Just to confuse us, let's throw in Matthew 11. Here we go. <clears throat> Matthew 11. So did you catch it? Gabriel says, so the Jews are expecting Elijah. Gabriel says this, this son is going to be named John, and he's going to have this ministry. And he's going to go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's going to be very powerful, and it was. So they go and ask him. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. But then Jesus himself, back in Matthew 11, which we've already looked at, look at verse 13. Matthew eleven thirteen. 13, watch. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This man is a key figure. I've never put as much emphasis on this man as I realized I should have been doing until I got preaching through the book of Matthew. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The law is saying one must come to pay for sin. The sacrifices of animals are not going to cover it. Someone must come. Someone must come. The prophets keep proclaiming a Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. Messiah is coming. He will do this. He'll be this kind of person. He'll come from here. He'll be born this way. He'll do this and he'll say this. And they're giving all these clues. He's coming. He's coming. Here's what to look for until John. And that's why when we preached this, I said that John is such a key figure because he's actually like the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet. And here's what makes him so special because he doesn't say Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming like they all did. He says Messiah is here. He doesn't give clues about the Messiah. He actually points to this man Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And is not this the Christ? 
And he calls him the very son of God. So he points. He's not like clues. That's him right there. So he was much more specific. So the law and the prophets prophesied until John. Now look at verse 14. Jesus says, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Wait a minute. He's already said he's not Elijah. If you'll accept it, what is it? John's message that Jesus, him right there, that man from Nazareth, is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, the only Savior of the world. If the nation of Israel will accept it, his message, then he will be Elijah. So where does that leave us? Back to chapter 17. Let's take a quick note. You see verse 11? Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize. This is confusing, right? So I'm going to try to, in the next just very brief moments, offer the following solution. Taking all of these together. John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, if you'll accept his ministry, then he is Elijah. Gabriel says he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. We know they're expecting Elijah. Write this note down. Jesus says Elijah is coming and that he has already come. How is that possible? He is coming, and yet he's already come. So is the prophecy fulfilled? What's the answer? I'm going to propose to you that John was a partial fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. John the Baptist was a partial fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. So very quickly, let me tie it together. Jeff, what do you think is happening? Based off Matthew 11, I believe this is the situation. Jesus says, if this generation of Jews will accept John the Baptist's message that I am the Christ, then John the Baptist will be the complete fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy in Malachi. He will fulfill that. The problem is you and I know that the nation of Israel as a whole, led by their leaders rejected John's message, and therefore, because they rejected his message, they rejected Jesus as the Christ and crucified him. And therefore, John did not ultimately fulfill, completely fulfill the Elijah prophecies. I believe he's a partial fulfillment. You say, so then where does that leave things? I believe that that leaves things in this point where Elijah is still to come. I'm going to propose to you that Revelation chapter number 11 can't guarantee it, but it sure seems like one of the two witnesses that is going to come in the time of the tribulation that is going to help turn the hearts of the nation of Israel back to the Lord is Elijah himself. And so he's going to come, and he's going to have a very powerful ministry so that when the Lord himself comes, he doesn't have to destroy all the nation of Israel. They end up receiving Jesus Christ as their Messiah, which until now they have rejected him. And so if I could tie it all together with one more note that I did not have a few weeks ago for clarification, can I propose the following? The Elijah figure, John, preceded Jesus' first coming as Savior. But Elijah himself will precede Jesus' second coming as the final judge and as the visible king. And therefore, it's a complicated two-part prophecy. John is a Elijah figure who served a great purpose as a forerunner, but Elijah himself will yet still literally fulfill his prophesied ministry that was mentioned 
in Malachi chapter 4. One precedes Christ as Savior. The other precedes Christ as judge and visible king. One last thought. We're hitting our other main points today. You ready? One last thought. How you experience Jesus when the Lord returns depends on what you do with John the Baptist's message. Jesus is the final judge. For some, he will be a wrathful judge. For others, he will judge their life to evaluate their rewards. But he's going to be a judge, and he's going to be a visible king. How you experience him as judge and as king, is he a wrathful king or is he a loving king? Is he a judge that evaluates me for reward, or is he a judge that sees only sin and sends me to hell? All of that is dependent upon how you respond to John the Baptist's message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If you'll believe John's message that he's the Savior then and put your faith in Christ, then you will receive Christ as the evaluating judge of your life and as the loving, visible King who reigns, and you'll be part of his kingdom on earth and through eternity. What have you done with the message of John the Baptist? Back to Matthew 17. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Matthew 17. Number two, and really a whole new story. Jesus grants a father's plea. Jesus grants, we could almost say a desperate father's plea. I was very tempted, but I knew that my time would be doing what it's doing right now. Mark gives more than double what Matthew gives, but I'm going to preach Matthew's passage. What that means is a couple of things in particular. It's a lot, but I'm going to mention two things. Have any of you already noticed something unusual about the numbering of your verses? Raise your hand if you've already noticed that. I see just one in the back, two, three, like, maybe, like, maybe single-digit people. Look at the numbering of the, of the verses in our passage and keep moving forward. And what do you notice? What do we notice? There is no verse 21. So I'm preaching Matthew's passage. You have a note at the bottom if you have an ESV. The reason the ESV does not have verse 21 is because in the oldest, we could say most reliable manuscripts, verse 21 was not in there, and so it correctly goes with what's in the most reliable manuscripts. You say, well, then what in the world is verse 21? Perhaps you've heard it before. It goes something like this. It's a very small print, but it's the idea of, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So we're talking about the disciples come. How come we couldn't cast it out? And Jesus gives the reason in verse number 20, and then some manuscripts later added verse what we would call verse 21. But I'm not preaching verse number 21. He says, Jeff, so you think that didn't happen? Oh, I think it did happen, and I know that it did happen because it is in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 includes it, but it's not here in our text. And so I'm not going to be able to take time. But even there, I have to admit that in Mark 9, it doesn't include the word fasting. That was added by some. And so we're going to go with what we have before us this morning. Second thing that I'm not going to get to, though I'm very, very tempted. I had to skip it and delete what I had. Finish this because you've heard it for me. It's a classic statement in the New Testament. I believe, help thou my, say it a little louder. I believe, help thou my unbelief. Anybody want to guess who says that in the New Testament? 
This father says that. That's in Mark. And so he comes to the Lord. You've read it already. Look at verse number 15. When they came down from the, to the crowd, a man came up to him kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and, he, and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So you have to take all of this and put what Mark includes with it somewhere in there. He makes the mistake of saying, and if you can help him, please have compassion and help us. How do you think that went? He's got all these problems, and, and if you can help him, anybody want to guess how the Lord answers that? If you can, literally, y'all go look at it. I should have had it on the screen. If you can, there's like exclamation or I'm preaching it. I said I'm going to skip it. Here I am preaching it. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So the Lord doesn't like that coming to him requesting if you're able to do this. So anyway, I'm supposed to be skipping that, not including that, as tempting as it is. But now I do want to include this. Watch, Mark, I'm not going to turn there. You can read it later. Mark adds three things to what we've read. Number one, this was this man's only son. Number two, these attacks, what he calls seizures in the Gospels, have been happening since his childhood. A third piece of information, not in Matthew. As Jesus and Peter, James, and John come down the mountain, there's some scribes who are there. And they're arguing with Jesus' disciples. We don't know the details, but we can kind of figure it out, right? This man comes. He brings this. He's looking for Jesus. Jesus isn't there. The disciples try to help out. For some reason, they're not able to do it, been able to do it before. They can't do it this time. And so apparently, I'm, I'm assuming the scribes start mocking, making fun, or downplaying, or questioning their ability, questioning Jesus' ministry altogether. They're, no doubt, arguing back. No, this, what you're saying is not true. And there's a confrontation. There's argumentation. I, am, I imagine the crowd's getting involved with it. Surely some of this crowd has seen these very nine disciples be used, and they know about Jesus, and they're probably arguing back with the scribes. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into when he gets to the bottom of the mountain. One more piece of information I want to give you that Mark shares. He says that when the boy is thrown down... When this, he is seized by this, three things happen. Number one, he foams at the mouth. Number two, he would grind his teeth. And number three, he would become rigid. Picture it. He foams at his mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I've seen that. I remember when I went in middle school and high school, I, I, I had forgotten about it. I couldn't remember the young man's name until like three or four days ago. His name was Dwayne. And he wasn't in my class, very small school. We didn't really go by classes. We worked out of books, but we interacted all the time. In middle school and high school, I probably saw three or four times this young man do exactly what was just described. So if you would, look at verse 15. This father comes and he kneels before the Lord and said to the Lord, have, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. Can I offer you this morning that the word epileptic is supplied for us by the translators, sometimes translations will say he has seizures and this is this i want to emphasize this this is this father's diagnosis you say jeff are we reading about a young man who is actually an epileptic in modern terminology i'm going to tell you that no this is not a situation of a young man that was an epileptic in the situation why his attacks that happened to him are very random they're very random. They're not related specifically to some physical condition. 
They tell us that the physical condition is due to dysfunctioning brain circuits. That's what largely causes the modern condition of epilepsy. We know that's not the situation here because of the gospel of Luke and because of verse number 18. Y'all do recognize the situation here is not our idea of epilepsy, though the conditions are exactly the same that happened to him. Look at verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. That's important. What that tells me, this young man, however old he was, his condition is tied directly to a demon. So much so that when the demon is removed, the boy is instantly healed. It's not a situation where Jesus like heals his condition and casts out a demon. When Jesus casts out the demon, he has therefore immediately healed him of the seizures and the attacks. So it's not the same. His is owed to demon possession. I'll be brief in this because we've touched on it, but I have to hit it. Demons are real. They're very real. They're very powerful. They have their own personality. You say, Jeff, I understand that. I'm a little smarter than that. Um, I don't accept that. Yeah, I have a guy that I read who always downplays things like this. Can I say, if you deny the reality of demons, then you're denying the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God is true. You're denying... If you say, I just don't believe in the reality of demons and devils, then not only are you denying that the Bible is true, but you're denying, you say, well, I believe the Bible is true. You're denying that it is to be taken literally. Let me share a thought that I wrote. The Bible is not a book of myths. The Bible is not a book with neat ancient stories that make an occasional good point. It's a book created and breathed out by God that explains reality as it was, as it is, as it will be. The Word of God deals with realities. There are real demons and devils. Secondly, I would add to that, they for some reason crave to have a body. It seems they primarily want a human body. If they can't have a human body, they'll take an animal's body. We've learned this already by looking through the book of Matthew. Third, we know, again, prior to this, but confirmed by this, they're our enemy. Demons desire to possess a human body. Once they're there, they become not only possessing the body, but become possessive of it. Jesus says when, an, when a, a devil is removed, if he comes back and nothing is taking that house, he'll come back in with this idea, I'm going to return to my house. So you think, no, this is my body. If it's allowed to come in, it says, no, this is my body. You just get to live in here with me. They become possessive. Once they're there, they want to harm their hosts. This is exactly what we're reading. Did you notice? Look at verse 15 one more time. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often, often, twice he uses that, he falls into the fire and often into the water. This demon intentionally targets its attacks when the young man is near fire and water. He wants, that tells me very clearly, this young man, this, how old he is, he has scars all over his body from fires and coals. And they didn't have stoves and ovens like we did, so they had to have fires. It's not like he could just always avoid fire. They live apparently near the Sea of Galilee, so he's always near the water. This thing is trying to harm and to kill him if possible. Leaving the dad and other family members constantly trying to protect and keep him from danger as much as possible whenever these seizures and attacks would take place. In fact, not, a, not in Matthew, 
When Jesus says, go bring him to me, they go and they bring him. And as soon as the young man can see Jesus, the demon sees Jesus and puts on one final big attack before it exits, so much so that it leaves the young man's body, the Bible says, as if it were a corpse. People assume that the young man died on its exit until Jesus raises him up. Not saying that he died, but he looked like he died. What are we to learn from verses 14 and 15? Those of you who have been here on Wednesday nights recently, I, I hope at least one of you can remember the answer to this. Quiz time. You ready? We're reading a narrative. Remember that? A narrative. Chapter 18, 19, 20, we're going to get a lot of a discourse. But right now we're reading, we're reading a narrative. We have been. Narratives still teach truth. But narratives teach truth how? Does anybody remember that? Nobody. Going once. Going twice. I got to do better. I'm sorry? Thank you. Who is that? Cruz. Give Cruz a star. Cruz gets a star. Let's write this down. In Scripture, narratives teach truth indirectly. So you say, is there anything to learn from this? Absolutely. We have to be very careful about how we pull truth out of the text. But this text definitely teaches truth. But it teaches a discourse is just straight truth. I mean, you just got to deal with it. Jesus says this and this and this. But here we're watching this man. Jeff, where are you headed? Write this down. I believe as we look at verse 14 and 15, this man illustrates four important qualities of effective prayer. I'm going to hit it briefly, but I hope you'll take this home and just match it with your prayer life. Did you catch what I just said? Go home, match it with your prayer life. I'm trying to match it with mine because this man ends up getting what he asked for. And if this was a Wednesday night, I'd give you guys like three or four minutes and just say read 14, 15, over and over and over, write lessons that we learn about prayer, effective prayer. But we don't have time for that. Number one, write this down. He came to the Lord with his need. He came to the Lord for his need. He has this great need. His son is an epileptic. He wants to see him healed. Where's he going to go? He comes to the Lord. Jesus isn't there, so he tries the disciples, but ultimately when they can't do it, he goes back to the Lord. He's persistent. He brings his need to the Lord. Ask yourselves, what are my needs? What is my need in life? What do I do with those needs? Do you take them to the Lord? Number two, he was desperate. This father absolutely loves his son. He pities his son. He feels sorry for him because he has been suffering terribly. At any moment, he can be thrown into a fire or into the water, and it attacks him, making him foam at the mouth and grind his teeth and become rigid. He's afraid at any time this spirit, as Luke calls it, is going to seize him in such a way that it may just kill him if he's not there. So he has this great pity. Can I just say this? When you pray, is it obvious that some of your requests are more urgent than others because it should? Spend your, most of your time and most of your energy on the things that are the most urgent in your prayer life. Number three, notice that he comes with great humility as he approaches the Lord. He approaches the Lord with tremendous humility. Let me pause. I see three words in the text that shows us and proves to us that he has humility in his approach. What is one of those words? Does anybody see a word in verse 14 and 15 that proves he has great humility? Kneeling. Lord, mercy. Do you see it? Kneeling. Lord, mercy. Catch what I'm about to say. 
To ask for mercy is to admit I don't deserve the request. Lord, I don't deserve this in the truest sense of deserve. I can't demand it. Would you give mercy? He calls him Lord. I don't think he knows Lord like we know Jesus is the Lord, but he's very respectful and he lowers himself down. Do you come to the Lord humbly? And then fourth, I would ask, I would point out that he does this. His request was specific. He asked for his son's epilepsy to be cured by asking the Lord to show mercy. I know you're writing, but I want you to ask yourself. Be honest. Go home and evaluate. In fact, just evaluate this morning's prayer. When your prayer time is finished, is it clear what you have asked for? Is it clear what you have asked for? Or is it vague and nebulous and broad? Be clear. Into the, he's asking the Lord to help his son to be healed. Now look at verse 16. Let's make a quick point here. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. That's a problem. Why? I don't have time, but in previous, I think it was chapter 10 or 11, Jesus had already given the disciples. Remember, he sent them out on a mission, short-term mission trip. And he gave them power to heal and to cast out devils. They've already been given authority. They've been given power. And they have successful experiential ministry in casting out devils. They've already cast out devils. Yet this time they can't. What has happened? I have three quotes this morning. The first one is the following from MacArthur. He writes this. Catch, catch it. So what's happened? He says, what had gone wrong or changed? This is important because what we're about to touch in verse 16 is going to fall over into 19 and 20. This is the main thing of the text. Here he comes. MacArthur writes, what had gone wrong or changed? Their failure was not now due to the fact that Jesus was not with them. Oh, maybe Jesus is up on the mountain. That's why they couldn't. Nope. Their failure was not now due to the fact that Jesus was not with them because he was not with them on those earlier occasions either. Here it is. They still had Jesus' promise and his power, yet they could not cure the boy. That needs repeated. They still had Jesus' promise and his power, yet they could not cure the boy. So he offers the explanation of their failures, therefore obvious. Write it down. They failed to appropriate the power available to them. I read that, and that struck home to me. Why could the disciples not do that? Well, I know verse 19 and 20, the Lord answers their question. And knowing that, MacArthur again writes that line. They still had Jesus' promise. It's not like, oh, guys, that, that ran out. That was just a two-week assignment. That's a, Sorry, forgot to tell you, you didn't have power after that one little short mission trip. No, they still had his promise. They still have his power. What's the problem? They failed to appropriate the power that was available to them. I'll come back to this in a moment. But let me touch it first. You ready? So at my house right now, the lights are off. The lights are off. Like, oh, no, did we have a storm last night? No, we didn't have a storm last night. Some of you would be like, oh, yeah, Jeff, the lights are off at my house right now too. Why? Because nobody's home. I don't need to call Duke Energy and say, hey, the lights are off over at our house. I know why they're off. Y'all tell me, why are the lights off? Because we flipped the switch off. Now, get this. The power is still running to my house, and it's running all the way through the walls right up until there's a switch. But if I have the switch off, the lights are not on. I believe that many of us 
spend much of our time with all the power of the Lord Jesus Christ available to us, but we're not experiencing it because we're living with the switch off. I know it sounds real simple, but that's what's happened here. They had the power, still had the calling. Nothing there has changed. The power is right there in you. You just haven't flipped the switch. You're not relying on the power. That's what's going on in, chapter, in verse 16, 19, and 20. We'll come back to that in a moment. Back to 16. I brought him to your disciples. Please help. These are his conditions. I brought him to disciples. They couldn't heal him. Verse number 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Hear that. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Who's Jesus fussing at? I think about that. Let me give you a, a recap of who all is here. This is Jesus. There's a man. There's a man in front of him. Let's just picture Peter, James, and John behind him. Somewhere there's nine disciples. There's a boy back in the crowd. There's some scribes. And there's a crowd. Who's Jesus angry with? Everybody. <laughs> it's about everybody. Except, I just wonder if old Pete's back there going, not me this time. I was up there. I was up there. I'm not in on this. This is all you guys. That's usually me. I'm usually the one getting fussed out. But uh, this is, we're, we're clean this time. Okay. You see the two, the, verse 17, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I think literally what's happening, how long do I have to keep putting up with this? How long do I have to live here? Do y'all understand what that means? Unbelief. This is, this is a case of righteous, not indignation. I think some of the negative emotions that we all experience, many of them, and I'm not going to say all, I believe many of our negative emotions have a positive version of them. I believe we know there is human anger, which doesn't accomplish the will of God. But there is a righteous anger. There is a human frustration. But I believe this is a case of righteous frustration on the part of the Lord. And it proves that unbelief and perversity that is caused by unbelief literally pains the Lord. It's as though the Lord Jesus is saying, how long do I have to live on this earth with all of this perversity and all of this unbelief? I mean, he's really angry. He's angry at this man. How dare you say, if you can help my situation? Don't come at me with, if you can. I think he's angry with the scribes. I do. I think he's angry with the scribes. You scribes, I've had so much evidence. There is no excuse for you not to believe in me. But I said all that to say this. Who do you think he's the most angry with? I don't think he's the most angry with the man. I don't think he's the most angry with the scribes or the crowd, I think he's the most angry with his own disciples. Why? Because they've had tremendous advantages. Within the light of all their advantages, I believe verse 17 is basically the Lord's way of saying, guys, you should be much further down the road in your spiritual journey than you are. You have seen and heard. You've been with me. You've seen it all. How are you not able to do this? So they eventually ask him why they were not able to do this. Can I just say this? Some people are given more advantages than others. I honestly, if I was on a lie detector, I, would, I assume I'm going to give an account 
for much more than anybody else in this room. Now, some of you are probably saying, Jeff, I think I'm probably going to give an account. Remember what the Lord says, to whom much is given, much is going to be required. I was raised in a Christian home. I've had good teachers. I've had four study Bibles. I have read through four study Bibles in my lifetime. I have good books. I have no excuse to be where I'm at on the journey. I should be further down the road on my journey. If the Lord were here this morning and evaluating your life, would he be pleased with where you're at on the spiritual journey? He was very frustrated with his nine disciples on this day. The last thing on, this, on our second point, just quickly look at verse 18. It's not the key focus of Matthew's writing, but it, we can't skip it. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Can I just state the obvious? Jesus has authority over all things, and that includes all authority over all and every demonic force and devil. All of them. Jeff, what do you think that means? There is no person who's possessed on earth right now or who you will ever encounter in your time on earth who cannot be delivered by the power of Christ. No one. There is none too hard. None are too hard. He has all authority. Devils cannot resist the command of Christ. Now, I'm not going to say this dogmatically. I'm just going to throw it out, and then I'm jumping right to the last point, and we'll hit it quickly. Ready? I'm just throwing this out. Scripture never records a possessed person asking Jesus for deliverance. Never is a possessed person come, please deliver me from this demon that is in me. Apparently, the demon is so much in control, it would not allow the person to do that. But I'm just throwing it out again. I'm making an inference, not a definitive doctrine. But I will note that Jesus always granted the requests of the parent of those who came who are believers and had some relationship with the Lord and they were a believer in the Lord when they asked the Lord to deliver their child from demon possession, he always did it. I'm just saying that's what the Gospels tell me. You do with that what you want. Number three. Let's notice in verses 19 and 20 the essential element of faith. The essential element of faith. Verse 19. Having just said what we said about verse 16, verse 19 happens. Then this is separate in a house. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? You know why they're asking that? Because they're really puzzled. Why are they really puzzled? Because we've done this before. We've done this. We've done that. We had success. He's done it. He, all of us have done this. What in the world? What happened? What was the holdup? What was the problem? R.T. France writes the following. Here's the second of three quotes that I have for you. This one may be the most pointed. You ready? R.T. France writes the following. The effect of the pericope, and that means this section of Scripture. Y'all still ready? Ready? Here we go. The effect of the pericope is to issue a salutary warning to them and through them to all who seek to draw on the miraculous power of Jesus. I'm going to read that again. The effect of this pericope is to issue a salutary warning to them and through them to all who seek to draw on the miraculous power of Jesus. Here's the warning that there is nothing automatic about such power. And it may not be taken for granted. The key, as has been stated so often in the previous accounts of miracles, lies in faith. 
He offers the following. It's your next note. It seems that the authority to throw out demons is not enough on its own. Faith is also necessary. That struck me. Because these guys already have the authority. They have the power. They've already experienced. They've already done it. Yet this time it doesn't work. Why? He says it seems that the authority to throw out demons is not enough on its own. Faith is also necessary. Now we could take that authority for that specific ministry and apply it to other specific ministries that the Lord gives his people authority to do. And I think we could make the same application. Just having the authority and even the calling to do something is not enough on its own. Faith is also necessary. I wish I had time. We could go to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3. We could go to Colossians 1. Here's what you would find. Paul prays for the Ephesian church and for the Colossian church. A very specific prayer. If he was here with Graceview, here's his prayer. He would pray for enlightenment. Lord, let those Ephesians and let those Colossians be enlightened to what they have. Not what they can have, what they have. But then he also turns around and prays, Lord, let them not just be enlightened to what they have. Let them be enabled and empowered by what they have. Let them be empowered by that. Here's what he's saying. They have the power. You Ephesians have the power. My prayer for you is that you would know that you have the power of Christ and that you would be empowered by it, that it would be enabled in you. Translation, that you would live with the light switch on so that you would not be defeated and ineffective as much as you are. Man, that strikes me this week. Like, Jeff, how long, how much do you live with the switch off? We need to live with the switch on. We, have, we don't need more power. We have the power of the Lord. We need to appropriate the power of the Lord is the word we heard earlier. I want your help. I need your help here. You're going to think. The active expression of faith. The active expression of faith. So the active expression of faith is what? Also five letters. That, that is true. Good answer. I'm thinking another a synonym for faith and belief. Let's do it again. The, yes, I heard it. Those of you online, the word is trust because you couldn't hear it here in the house. Watch. The active expression of faith and belief is trust. Could we say dependence, reliance? I want to read something I wrote, I think, this morning. I know my time. I'm watching it. He said, Jeff, I'm doing a good watch. It's over. It's gone. No, I'm watching it. I'm watching it go over. Please get this. Did you see, glimpse at verse 20. Why could we not cast it out? He said, because of your little faith. You only have little faith. But then he turns around. This is very confusing. Truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, then you're going to be able to say this mountain. And by the way, it doesn't mean literally move mountains. Moving mountains in that culture meant removing huge difficulties. You'll be able to get rid of and remove enormous difficulties. Otherwise you couldn't. But you have to have faith like a grain of mustard seed. What does that mean? You're just basically saying they weren't able to do it because they have little faith, and then you compare the kind of faith that will get results to little mustard seed. Little faith here didn't work, so why is a little faith over here? Is there a way to look at this? I'm going to propose the following. Perhaps the difference between the little faith they appear to have and the faith as a grain of mustard seed 
that Jesus is calling them to is the difference in the connotation of the words believe and faith as compared with these words, trust and depend on and rely on. It seems they knew in their head and in their hearts, we could say, they knew this truth that they had the power of God, but they were not actively trusting and depending on and relying on the Lord's power in the moment. Oh, yeah, they know it here, but they're not relying on it in the moment of using it and appropriating it. I think that's what's happening. And that's why they're ineffective. I have a long note. Let's just do it for time's sake. Would you throw the next one? Because I have another one coming right behind it. But I want you to get it. This is the longest note I've ever had here. By far. What was that? A dozen or more blanks that you guys have to write. But only write and listen at the same time. This is important. Whether speaking of salvation itself. Salvation. How do you get saved? Spiritual power after we're saved. So now that I'm saved, I want spiritual power after salvation. Or answered prayer. All of us want have answered prayer. We all want salvation. We don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. We all want power, spiritual power after we're saved. And we all want answered prayer. The key to having those is the combination of two things. God's grace and man's faith. Our faith. Notice, this is a major doctrine with me. Of those two essential elements, so we have God's grace. I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you spiritual power after you're saved. I'm going to give you answered prayers. Of those two elements of God's grace and man's faith, the first and the most crucial of the two is God's grace. It's really the key is God's grace. I even went so far as to say human faith is worthless apart from God's grace. It's worthless. means nothing. Somebody, and there are a lot of people in the world who think, they think they're going to heaven. They're not going to heaven. But they think, they have faith that they're going to heaven. But they've not received God's grace. Some people think uh, that, that a prayer of theirs was answered. It wasn't an answer to their prayer. It just happened that they asked for something one time that God was already going to do. Some people think they have spiritual power and direction, and they, are, they do not have it. So human faith is worthless apart from God actually giving the salvation. So you see how I very much for two-thirds of that note I have emphasized the grace part, God's part, God's part. Now I want to emphasize the last point. Yet Scripture repeatedly teaches that God demands that we have faith to be able to receive His full grace. It's about His grace. But when He says, I'm going to give you salvation, you have to Receive it by faith. God, Christians, listen. God says, I have given you spiritual power. I've already given you spiritual power. Ephesians, we could go there and it's all through there. You have it. But you have to have faith that you have it. I'm ready to answer your prayers. And you've been praying these prayers. I'm ready to answer it, the Lord would say. But I'm not going to answer it until you have real faith. You have to have faith. I demand it of you. We could say it this way. Look at verse 20. He said to them, why could we not cast them out? Because of your little faith. Simplest note we've had in a long, long time. Take it home and chew on it. I'll not develop it. Just give it to you. Ready? Jesus gives us a dual truth. Unbelief makes us weak. Unbelief makes us weak. Faith makes us strong. Unbelief makes us weak. Faith makes us strong. 
I think the second way of looking at the whole mustard seed, why does Jesus use mustard seed? He says, if you have faith like, the grain, like a grain of mustard, he doesn't say if you have faith like a grain of sand. He doesn't say that. Both are small, tiny, about the same size maybe. If you have faith as a grain of sand, he doesn't say that because a grain of sand always stays the same size. I think the second way of looking at the key to verse 20 is if you'll have faith as a, as a grain of mustard seed, because a grain of mustard seed, though it may start as small, it grows. It may start in the head and in the mind and in the thinking, but it will grow into trust and dependence, and it will develop and have great effects. And then here's the last thought that I give you. Why were we not able to cast them out? He said, because of your little faith. I say to you, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will be moved. It will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Write this down. Littleness of faith was not a cute condition Jesus was simply informing them of. Maybe you've heard someone, yeah, I'm just not very, I just don't have strong faith. Like it's okay. Hey, I just don't have strong faith. How long have you been saved? Oh, I've been saved about 20, 30 years. It's just, I'm just not real strong in my faith. Littleness of faith was not a cute condition Jesus was simply informing them of. It was an ongoing problem he was tired of. He's tired of it. And so MacArthur writes the following. This is the last quote. This sounds like us. He writes, when things were going well, by the way, the disciples doubted, how's he going to feed the thousands? Second time, how's he going to feed the thousands this time? They doubt him out on the storm one time. They, Peter doubts him out on the storm another time when Peter was walking on the water and he started doubting when he saw the winds and the waves. Over and over and over, and the Lord is now finally tired of their unbelief and their faithlessness and their littleness of their faith. Their faith that is apparently only in their head and they don't actually employ it in trust and dependence and reliance. MacArthur writes this. When things were going well with the disciples and everything seemed under control, they found it easy to trust their Lord. But as soon as circumstances become uncertain or threatening, their faith withered. Their faith was like the faith of most believers in all ages. When they're healthy and have the necessities of life, their faith is great and strong. But when they are in need, their faith is small and gives way to doubt. He offers great faith, trust God, when there's nothing in the cupboard to eat and no money to buy food. Great faith trusts in God when health is gone. Work is gone. Reputation is gone. Or family is gone. Great faith trusts God while the windstorm is still howling. When it is still howling, it just keeps on. They didn't have great faith at this time. They will by the time they give their life for the Lord. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Lord, why were we not able to cast them out? Because of your little faith. Before we dismiss this morning, allow the Lord to evaluate your life just for a moment. Can I change the question in verse 19? Let me change the question to the following questions. There are some Christians who perhaps should be asking this question. They don't need to ask why they were not able to cast out a devil because that was not their ministry. but. Some Christian listening now needs to ask this question. Here it is. Lord, why are my prayers so rarely answered? Be honest with me. Why are my prayers 
And I'm only talking to people who actually pray. I believe many Christians go through the motions of praying. Unfortunately, I believe some Christians hardly pray ever, but those that go through the motions of praying don't receive prayers answered. Lord, why are my prayers so rarely answered? I think the Lord would say it's because of your little faith. You don't really believe. I'm not going to really answer that until you're ready to really trust and depend and rely upon. When you start doing that, then you're going to see some prayers answered. I'm quite sure there's a Christian who needs to ask this question. Lord, be honest with me. Shoot straight. Why does that same certain sin, that same sin, the one that just popped in your mind, why does it keep defeating me? I do fine for a while and then it gets me. Why does that keep happening? I think the Lord would say it's because of your little faith. You have the power, Romans 6, but in the moment, you don't trust. You don't depend on me. You don't rely upon me in the moment. You have it in your head, but that's pushed to the side. If you'll trust me in the moment, that sin will not defeat you. There are some listening right now who should ask this question, Lord, why is it so hard for me to give of my resources to you? I know that I should be giving more. And some would say, Lord, I don't give any. And some would say, Lord, I give that much. You know exactly what I do, but I know that you desire more from me. Why is that so hard for me to give of my resources, my money to your work and your ministry? I'm quite sure the Lord would say the same as verse 20. It's because of your little faith. You don't think your needs will be met. You don't think it matters. You don't think I'll reward you in the next life if you do. There may even be a Christian who could ask the following. God, why am I so afraid to obey your special call on my life? I know you've been calling me. Why am I so fearful? Why am I reluctant? Why have I yet to obey? And the Lord would say, it's because of your little faith. There's someone, and I'm speaking to a smaller group now, but they would need to ask this question. It's the final one. Lord, why has my ministry for Christ in that area been so weak and so fruitless? Perhaps he would say, it's because of the littleness of your faith. Have you been trying to perform ministry in your own flesh, in your own power, in your own thoughts, rather than totally relying and depending upon the Lord that He can and will and is working through you? It's because of littleness of faith. And just before I pray, I propose, if those things I just mentioned prayers not being answered, sin not being defeated, finding it hard to give our resources to the Lord, reluctant to obey God's call, weakness in ministry. If those are not at a level in our life that requires faith, then they're not at the right level. For instance, if you're giving, it's just comfortable. It's easy. I can give that. What I'm giving currently requires no faith. Then it's not at the level it should be. If your prayers, I'll get the occasional prayer answered then you're not praying at a level that requires faith. Pray for something that only God can do. Give for something that it will require God to meet the needs. 
Christ has all the authority, has all the power. If you're a Christian, he literally lives in you. You have the power. Live with the light switch on. Some prayer requests seem impossible. Some sin seems impossible to be defeated. Jeff, you don't know, this thing has gripped me for so long. It has such a hold on me. It is so deep in my memory. It's so deep in my habits. I don't know that I could ever. If it is God's will for you to have victory over that, and it is, then rely upon Him and trust Him and receive His power in the moment. Let's pray. Father, help me to live with the switch on. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten me to the power that is always there, that is in me, because your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus himself, and Jesus has all authority. The Spirit of Jesus himself lives in me. And so I have all the power I will ever need. Help me to learn to appropriate that so that I will not be defeated as the disciples were on this occasion. Lord, let us be found fruitful and victorious. Father, I pray that we would be praying for things that are so unique and powerful that only you could do them. We cannot explain them in human terms. And Lord, let us pray bigger with expectation and boldness in your will, according to your will. Lord, let us not ask for things to consume them upon our flesh, but Lord, within your will and then rely upon you to answer it. So Lord, I commit this people to you. Thank you for the lessons from this passage. May, may we chew on them today and in the coming days. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.